Hey everybody, Charlie Epstein here at Business in Booths, and today I'm so excited to have the opportunity to be interviewing Attilio Cotteropoli, who is a multi-dimensional in individual because uh, not only was he in the real estate business, but is also the sole owner of Twin Hills Country Club, which is celebrating what you just said, its 10th anniversary? It's 10th anniversary since I took the place over, yes. Yeah. Do you know exactly when the club was established? It, uh, they did the groundbreaker in 1964, and uh, it opened in 1965. So I think, this is what's really gonna be cool about this, is I think my father was one of the first members, mm -hmm. because I grew up there as a kid learning how to swim in that goddamn pool that you have. <laughs> and that pool is still there. Uh, yeah. That pool is still there, but you've been doing a lot of work at the pool. Yes, we yeah, have. Uh, yeah, and we saw that as we were driving around on the golf cart. but. Uh, so I'm really excited to have this opportunity to sit here with Tilio. I actually just joined the club officially, going on my third year as a member. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's plenty to choose from around here. And we're gonna get into the story of how does somebody from uh, the real estate business end up in the golf business? And I know there's some history behind that. But before we even got there, let's go all the way back. Where are you from originally? Well, I was born in uh, Salerno in Italy. Salerno, Italy. Italy. Yes, and came here as an eight-year-old boy. So what do you- As a legal immigrant. <laughs> as a legal immigrant. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So what do you remember about being in Italy growing up? Do, do you have memories? Yes, in Italy, we were pretty poor. You know, it was, uh, you know, uh, just living off the land and uh, doing the best you could just to survive. Wow. And. Uh, you know, things got pretty tough there. My parents knew that uh, it was tough to make a living in Italy. And he had some relatives uh, that were here in the Springfield area and we migrated here. That's unbelievable. And, uh, we, everything just took off from there. Yeah, so you get here at, uh, on the boat. Did you go through Ellis Island? Yes, yes. Yeah, and you, do you actually have the Ellis Island certificate? No, I, I don't have that. Wow. I've been looking for it. I should have it. And I found save that. Yeah. I found my family's. Uh, so my father was born. My father's father was born in Moscow, mm -hmm. and my great great grandfather Isaac Abram uh, Epstein came over with my grandfather, who ended up being an accountant in Hartford. Mm -hmm. I had his own accounting firm, and I don't know if you know this, he was one of the original founders of Tumbleburg Country Club oh, yeah, in Bloomfield, yeah. Connecticut, mm -hmm. Max Epstein. So growing up as a kid, it was pretty amazing. So you come here, you're eight years old, and what do you remember growing up in the Springfield area as a kid? You know, What did your father do when he my came? My father came here as a barber, and uh, he had to have a job set up already here in order to migrate to the United States. If you didn't have a job, you weren't allowed in. So. He was, he practiced his profession and uh, came here and became a barber and was a barber for like 50 years. And where was his shop? He was in the Hill McKnight area on Bay Street. Oh yeah. Yes. Unbelievable. Historic area there, yes. Yeah, that's a great area. Yes, that's it was, yeah. yeah. So now, you went to school where? Well, went to Catholic school at the uh, Holy Family Grammar School in the uh, Six Corners area and then graduated from Cathedral High School with a Catholic upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Yeah. You went to college? Yes, went to uh, Westfield State College to become a teacher. Really? Yes. What did you yeah. teach? I was a, a social studies teacher at the uh, in the middle school in Springfield. So how did you go from a social <laughs> studies teacher to eventually? I mean, you created a, a, a real estate empire, really, right? Yes. How did that all come about? Well. <sighs> After graduating from school, I says, teaching was going to be my vocation, and I was teaching at the Forest Park Junior High School. I was there for 13 years, and during that time period, 
I purchased, as soon as I got married, I purchased a two-family house. Yeah, but you and, told me a story about how, why you had to purchase, right, didn't you? Yes, Your father yeah. said something to you. <laughs> yes, my father said to me, he says, son, says, you don't have any money, but I'm willing to loan you $1,000 if you buy a two-family home. If you want to buy a one-family home, well, then you're on your own. Well, <laughs> I didn't have any money, <laughs> so that was it. So I said, well, okay, I'm going to find a two-family house and see about what I could do to purchase that. And so I purchased the house, and as months went by, I says, I says, this is pretty good, you know? My tenants are paying my mortgage, my taxes, my insurance and everything, and I'm living pretty much for nothing. So anyway, we have a, we have a beginning of a capitalist yeah. mindset, right? Right, yeah. Right? You suddenly realize, if I had a single family home, I'm paying for everything. If I have a two family home, people are paying for me, other people's money, OPM. Exactly. It's one of the greatest things mm -hmm. I love about this country. Yeah. So being a uh, fact that I says, well, I had now my two family home, I was able to get a job teaching in Springfield, and I did both. I did the uh, real estate, and as time went on with the two-family house, I said, boy, this is working out so good, I'm going to buy another one. So I bought another two-family. How many home. years uh, before you bought your about, second one? It was uh, two years later. Okay. And So you're married. Married. What, how, and what did your wife think about it? Oh, she, she liked the idea. Ah. She, you know, she was working full time. I was working full time and doing part time, you know, fixing up the houses and painting and everything, doing all the repairs that need to be done. And we kept working at it and we kept growing. So we buy one more. Then I says, geez, this is working out well. Buy a third and a fourth and a fifth. And we started buying larger apartments. And by the time 10 to 13 years went by, I was teaching and I had about 50 apartments throughout the city. Wow. And I says, well, I says, I really love teaching, but it's uh, very lucrative in the real estate business. So I gave up teaching and went into uh, real estate business full time. Wow. Wow. So and, uh, at that point, did you have, did you have employees while you were teaching no. and, and cause you had 50 units. I had 50 units. I had a couple so, of employees that worked for me full time and uh, everything worked out pretty well. Okay, so flash forward, yeah. uh, how big did it get? Well, as uh, after I got out of teaching, I, since I was into it full time, I set up an office and everything. And uh, you know, I got to the point where I about, within about eight to 10 years, I had 500 units. Wow, so what year is this now? This is like 1986, 87. Ah, so 1986, 87, I remember something happened. The banks on Wall Street went belly up and we yes, had something did. called recall. Yeah. Where, I mean, right here we had Third National Bank, we mm -hmm. had SI, you know, we had three banks that just went, Vanguard, wasn't it? Went belly up. Yeah, Fleet and yeah, yeah. quite a few of them, yeah. Uh, well, no, actually, Fleet came in and bought them all up, and then they got bought up. That's right, yeah. Right. So now, how did you, because I owned real estate in the mm -hmm. 1980s apartments, and then Reagan came in and changed the tax regs. Right. So, for those of you who don't know, when Ronald Reagan came in and, and the Economic Reconciliation Act, it used to be you could buy a piece of property, and if it had losses, you could write those off. Yeah, yeah. But they changed the law to say, well, you can't write off the losses unless you have a gain. Were you impacted? Because you'd been into it for quite a while. Were you yeah. impacted much by that? I was because of the uh, uh, the market value of the properties went dramatically down. Right. You know, something that might might have been worth, say, $100,000 would now be worth 30, 40, yes. or 50. I, sold, I paid 100 yes. and sold one for 25,000 just exactly. to get out. Yeah. 
But if you didn't have to sell and hung in there, which is what I did. So you were still getting your rents. I still getting my rents. So it didn't affect me unless, of course, I wanted to sell something. If I wanted to sell something, I was going to get killed. Right. So I just hung on and made it through the tough times and things just got got better. And Now, were there opportunities? I mean, a lot of people went belly up. So were you able to take advantage of that or did you just tighten your belt? Well, you really couldn't take advantage of it because the banks were not loaning any money out to real estate investors. Although there were plenty of deals out there, well, you can't get financing. It was like the black sheep. You can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Were you worried? Yes, I was worried. I said I could lose all the properties, and uh, you know, because I was I had extensive mortgages and everything. But uh, we worked through it, and it worked out okay. Wow, that's incredible. So, what what lesson? Like, what what was the biggest lesson you took away from that period of time? Was it did it change think, your philosophy on? I think what helped me was that. I worked full time before I got in the real estate business. My wife worked full time and we didn't take any profits out of the real estate business. And any monies that we made, we poured it right back into the property. So the properties were always in pretty good shape. They may have been at variable, say questionable areas, but they were always in really, really good shape. And we kept pouring more and more money into it, keeping their value up and keeping it this way would keep the uh, tenants interested in staying there instead of moving out and everything and being able to rent the apartments out a little bit easier right. if the apartments had been done done over and upgraded and everything so we kept putting there was some money into it tough i mean there were neighborhoods i remember when i bought in, in the middle of springfield there were beautiful italian neighborhoods yeah. and within two or three years italians moved out we had low-income housing, we had Section 8, we had ugh, just horrible, horrible, horrible situation. Did you run into much of that? We did. As a matter of fact, uh, things were so bad in some of the areas that were drug-infested and everything. Yeah. It got to the point where I had properties in those areas. I've hired out security guards. First time, even I met with the mayor and I said, yeah, I says, the police just can't stay on top of everything and do anything to help out. So I hired my own private security people to work wow. the neighborhoods, to move the people around, to stop the drug dealings and everything. And although it was costly, it saved the properties. Because yeah. now the tenants were not afraid to go into their apartments and they weren't afraid to come in at night. And it worked out uh, extremely well. It was really, really expensive to do something like that. But to me, so, that was the last hope. It was right. either that or get out. Right, but you took matters in your own hands. Yeah. I mean, I remember having a crack house two doors down from my mm -hmm. house on Revere Street. I was on Revere yeah. and Ozark. I mean, I know you know yes, those Yes, I know those areas. Because you were, your office was right around the right corner. Right around the corner from there, right. <laughs> so I know exactly what it I was. I used to actually drive by yeah. your, the, and go, Carteropoli, I wonder who that is, <laughs> before you and I even met. Yeah. And just dealing with that. And then, of course, you had the housing court issue. Yes. Right. Yes. Let's, let's be frank. We're on camera, but the yeah. state of Massachusetts is pro-tenant and anti-landlord. Exactly. It, it yes. didn't matter what you did, right? It didn't make if any If they kicked in the door... The judge said, pay for it. If they burnt the house down, the judge said, pay for it. And by the way, pay for them to live somewhere and then move them back in. Yeah. How'd you deal with all that? It was tough, but that was the cost of doing business. The thing is, it is tough on when you're dealing with lower income uh, apartment buildings. And uh, But, you know, if you get into the business, well, you know what the rules are. And you can't complain. You know, the housing court is one-sided but right. so if you know that going in well you deal with it if you don't like it go and go try a different profession that's all but uh yeah uh the one of the things that the housing court 
fails to see is the fact that a large landlord like myself, we have a staff in an office that can do all the computing, the bookkeeping, the notices and everything else. So we can stay ahead of uh, the eviction process. So it's not as bad. But for the small person that has a two or three family house, right, he doesn't know what the laws are. And the laws, a lot of times, Change. make no sense whatsoever. So trying to go to court and use common sense just doesn't work. Right. You, know, you just gave out the wrong notice or something, you're in trouble and you're going to get whacked quite a bit. So we know the laws and so we can stay ahead of everybody. Right. But it's a small guy that gets killed. And that's the bad thing with the housing court. Because a guy, you know, that invested in a three family house to put his kid through college. Like you when you bought your yeah. first two yeah. family, right? There was no housing court back then, thank goodness. <laughs> wow. So who are some of your influences? Because you know, you've you've got this the thing I, I really appreciate about you is you're just this, you almost remind me of my dad, just very steady, very confident, not overpowering, but being around you, there's just a sense of of calm and confidence. Who are your greatest influences that, that, you know, that you look back on? When I look back on, my father was a big influence on me. He's the one that first of all steered me in a direction. And, you know, he really taught us the value of money. One of the things was, just, you know, if we need a new refrigerator or a new stove or a new couch or something, well, you save money until you can afford to buy it. You're not buying it on credit and being overextended and get yourself in trouble. You do without it until you have the cash to do it. And that's been my philosophy all the time. Don't get in over your head. Mm. Don't buy some properties that there's so much financing on there that you know, you're going to get killed or you, you can't make it work. The numbers have to work, and if they do, you're all set. You have nothing to worry about. That's great. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, what do you think the greatest decision you've ever made in your life has been? First, uh, getting out of education and getting into the real estate business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I had uh, so many of my friends that were teachers were saying, "Well, you know, you're giving up a great health insurance right. package that the pension. the pension, and everything else." And I says, you know, I says, if I don't get out now, I'll be in it too long and I'll never get out. Right. So I says, let me get out when I'm So young. you were married at the time. Did you have kids? I had, yes. I was married, had two boys at the time, yes. Yeah. So you're already that, that kind of mentality where they were saying to you, you know, how are you going to do this? And mm -hmm. you've got these bills yeah. and these expenses, right? But your wife was supportive. She was, yes. Yeah. And we worked together as a team and it worked out. Did, did well. she work in the business? She was, yeah. Eventually? Yes, yeah. she did. She was, uh, uh, she worked for a CPA before we got married, and she knew the ins and outs of all the bookkeeping. And so she was the perfect bookkeeper for me and everything. And perfect, yeah, worked out well. So those are great success stories. What would you say the greatest mistake you've ever made in in life? I remember buying one property uh, when during the Reagan years when things were really really bad. And it was one of the largest properties I purchased. And I remember buying it for $1.6 million. <clears throat> what year was this? This was in uh, 1986 that I bought it. Yeah. And I ended up selling it in 1991. And I was happy as anything to get rid of it for $500,000. Oh. That was a big mistake. But, uh, you know, I learned from that. And, uh, you know. What were the what were the top two takeaways from that? Well, 
if I hung on, if I held on to the property, I, if the property I knew was going to come back, but there was just so many uh, issues and problems. There was drug dealing in the area that was prevalent and everything. Mm. This is, I just didn't want to deal with that. And, uh, you know, uh, so it's time to move on, take the loss, mm. and move to something else. I can see the pain in your eyes <laughs> thinking about it. Yeah. I think about that and I say, geez, how did you lose that much money? He says, well, it's, most of it's on paper. So you don't actually see it, right? But it, it, but it you gets know what you. I love about it. I love about that is that you know most successful people all talk about their successes. Mm -hmm. Very few will admit, right? <laughs> we all make mistakes. Oh yes, and yeah. that's how you get better. Mm -hmm. right? That's how you get more successful. It's unbelievable. So let's talk about. So how did you go from the real estate empire to the golf industry? That's a that's really a questionable situation because <laughs> are you still I know, are you still wondering <laughs> Ten I, years I, I later? don't know I know at the time I didn't know anything about the golf that's business. what you told me yeah you never even played the game yeah uh, when I was in the real estate business it was uh, playing golf I says who the heck has time to go hit that ball around five or six hours a day because I was working 12 14 hours a day so yeah. I don't have the time so it's not only that it's just it's expensive I just never thought about golf. And then uh, as years passed and my uh, two boys were old enough and graduated from college, I said, you know, I, I got to take them into the business. They both said that they wanted to be in the real estate business. So yep. I brought them on working together and I found that I said, you know, I says, if I'm in the office with them, I says, they never, they're never going to make a decision. I says, I'm here all the time. And they're always going to ask me, what do you, how do we do this? How do we handle this? What do we do in this situation? I says, well, I learned by making mistakes. I says, the only thing I can do with them is to let them make some mistakes. But if I'm there to catch the mistakes, I says, they'll I, never learn. When you told me this, I, I sat back and I said, I love this man. That's mm -hmm. unbelievable. So you, you said, I mean, most people would go on vacation, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Say, honey, we're going to go travel. But instead, you decide... At that point, it's just now I have time so I can afford to play golf. I said, I'm going to take up golf because I said, you know, I says I can get some exercise in. I've got plenty of free time mm -hmm. and I can afford to play, pay for it. So it's not a problem. So I joined Twin Hills Country Club. This was how many years ago? This was in 1998. Okay, 98. And uh, I was there for about 10 years as a member and things every year started to go downhill with Twin Hills and other country clubs that were yeah, around. I mean, the whole industry was just and crumbling. It was falling apart. And uh, the owners of the place, which was the membership, they decided that they couldn't handle it anymore. There's too many losses and they would have to sell it. So we got together with a group of 10 members who said, when we get together, we'll save this club so that we can still keep playing and keep our social uh, life together and everything. And, there's 10 of us that got together and we were meeting on a weekly basis and everything. And about four or five months go by and we haven't made one decision. Nobody knows which way to go, how we want to do it and everything. There's just 10 people, that's too many. That's never going to work. Just, let's narrow it down to four guys. Okay, so we came down to four people and I was one of the four and we decided that how we wanted to do it and we were having the same problem. One person says, well, I don't know if I really want to pour any money into it. I don't know if I want to fix it. I don't know 
if we should get a general manager. We don't know what to do. I says, you know, I says, I come here. At the time, I was playing golf five days a week. I says, I was retired. I didn't have nothing to do. I says, you know, I says, I'd like to do something. I says, you know, I, I don't know anything about the golf business. So I says, well, I says, it can't be any different than any, any other business. I says, I'm going to treat it like a business. It has to work. And I went in uh, on my own. And I says, when I first started, I had some questionable <clears throat> uh, I, you know, more or less ideas on how to proceed. I had expected to proceed real slow, just doing a few odds and ends. And as soon as uh, everybody found out that I was the one that was involved with the uh, golf club, everybody's saying, well, he's in real estate. He's not going right. to keep no. it as a golf I, course. I, I remember. Yeah. I remember as soon as you bought it, I heard, Kai Rapley bought Twin Hill. And everybody's like, oh, he's going to develop it. It's going to be housing. It's going to be condos. There won't be a golf course yeah. anymore. So how'd you deal with all that adversity? Well, even, I mean, did even the membership my go down? membership was down to 85 members. So wait a minute, well, well, let's back up. So you buy the golf course, you know yeah. nothing about golf. Right. Membership's down to 85. It's also a period of time when other golf courses are going under. Yeah. Was this like the biggest gamble you've ever taken in your life? It, it was, but I was committed to I can't, I can't go in there with the attitude that it might not happen. Right, I your sons won't let you come back to work. Yeah, so they've shut you out. <laughs> they shut me out. So that's it. You and take care of your wife. Office. Say I've had enough of this too. Or <laughs> uh, she told me that I was probably crazy doing something like this. <laughs> but, the, but the thing was, a lot of my friends just didn't believe me when I told them I was going to keep it as a golf course. Right. So I said, you know, if they don't believe me. I says, how am I going to get new members? Because new, a new member's not going to come in if he sees that, you know, it may be turned into housing. Right. So I says, well, I got to do something. And I says, you know, the biggest splash that I can do to make it work is I says, the driveway and the parking lot is a disaster area. It looks like hell when you come in. It looks so bad that it's just not inviting. Right. So I says, you know, I says, if I spend a lot of money to fix up the parking lot, I says, everybody can see it driving by, and everybody's gonna have to say, well, if he's putting all that money in the parking lot, he can't be turning it into housing because that would be a disastrous decision. Yeah. And that was the first part. Once uh, the pavers came in and started seeing the work and some members coming by to see what was going on, slowly but sure, the members started trickling in, and, you know, and it worked out really well. And, just kept making them. Yeah, but I remember you telling me a story. So you had a grounds person, and you yeah. told me this story. I remember this story. Yeah. That you know nothing about golf, nothing about the grounds, right? And you said you tell me the story something about you went to him and said, "Are we ready to open?" Yeah. And it was a disaster, wasn't it? Yes. What happened is uh, I bought the uh, club in January, of and 2009. So you're, all right, you're coming on your tenth year. Yeah. And. Uh, I talked to the groundskeeper and I says, yeah, we're going to open up. And I says, we want to open up and be in great shape so that, uh, you know, Twin Hills is a really one of the better clubs around. I says, I, I don't want to open up if everything isn't ready. So you tell me when it's ready so we can open up so the course will be in great shape. Well, that day happened, came here. I drive around the course and I says, as far as I'm concerned, the course is not in very good shape at all. And the groundskeeper says, well, that's the best I can do. I says, 
I says, oh boy, I said, I'm in trouble. I says, I don't know anything about golf. I says, I don't know anything about groundskeeping. I says, what am I going to do with this guy? I says, it doesn't make any difference. I says, I can't, if he's going to tell me that he can't fix it, I says, he's, he has to go. So I fire him on the spot. Wow. That's and now I have a real problem. Yeah. You have a golf <laughs> it's course, easy to no fire but Yeah, no <laughs> groundskeeper. And now we're talking about this is March. The end right. of March, beginning of April. I says, where am I going to find somebody? And I says, I don't even know where to look. And I don't even know what to ask him because I don't know anything about groundskeeping. <laughs> Folks, this is a great lesson. <laughs> and how to fly by the seat of your pants, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> In an industry that was on the decline. Yeah. Oh my God, this is unbelievable. And as things progressed, I told my uh, pro, which was still the pro that's there yep, now, John, John Stephan. Great pro. And he came from. Uh, Just took a lesson with him yesterday. Great pro, <laughs> by the way, everybody. Yeah. And uh, he was at Woodbridge uh, in Connecticut. And when he came here, and he saw that the problem we were having with the groundskeeper, he says, you know, he says, you might re want to reach out to the groundskeeper at Woodbridge because they're having all kinds of financial problems and the groundskeeper is an excellent groundskeeping guy. So- Mike Morowski. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 this is- Oh. Going way oh, back 10 years Mike. now. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So this uh, Mike, I mean, John says, you gotta talk to this guy, his name is Herb Watson. Okay, I says, do you know anything about him? He says, he's an excellent guy. You can't find a better guy than him. I says, where is he from? He says, well, he was a groundskeeper for 17 years at the Hartford Country Club. I says, man, well, Hartford Country Club is one of the best clubs around in the Connecticut area. I said, yeah, he was there for fantastic. 17 years. I says, he may not want to come here. Or I may not be able to afford him. <laughs> right. I says, well, call him in and give him an interview. And... Uh, what happened is he looked over our course and everything, and he really uh, did not want to work in a pu the public sector for a, a municipal golf course right. like at Woodbridge. And he says, I'd like to be able to come in here. And he, he says, uh, you know, he says, the course does need a lot of work. And he explained the things that it needed, needed and everything he mentioned sounded really good to me. I says, well, John, I says, you know him. You know, he's done a lot of good work. It says, and since he was at Hartford, it says he's got to know what he's doing. So he says, we'll hire him. We hired him and uh, from there, it worked out fabulous. He knew everything about groundscaping. I couldn't have hired a better guy. I says, thank goodness. Then he asked me, he says, I says, I got to put all my faith in him. He says, we have a budget or anything? I says, I want to have the best course around. That's your budget. I says, Here's you another have, lesson. You don't have a budget, but you know the membership we have, so I can't afford, you know. So what, was, it, what was the membership up to at this point? The membership was do you remember? About, about 125, 130 wow. at that point. I mean, but today it, you're over 300, right? We're at right around the 300 wow. mark. Right. And okay. we've been there for the last so seven, eight years. So you're still tottering on, you're not making any money. Not making any money. Right. But I knew, you know, you know, being realistic financially and everything, I knew that for the first four or five years, I knew I was going to lose quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. But I figured it says after year five, I says, then I got to start making a profit well, you know, and it's going to work out. Bevo said the same thing about yeah. Amazon to its shareholders. Yeah. I'm going to lose money for 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Right? <laughs> 
You're the only shareholder, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, wait a minute. Your wife is the shareholder. Yeah. You're answering to her. <laughs> but uh, when I hired uh, Herb, he did a, a fabulous job for me because I didn't have to do anything. I mean, he looked out for my interest and everything. And so probably once that happened, members started talking about... Look what's look what's going on here. Exactly. Yeah. The course was. What was the, what, what was the tipping point? Year three or four? What, what do you think? After the, the second year. Oh wow, that's they quick. Were, well, you know, almost eighty percent of the membership that left us to go someplace else saw what was going on at Twin Hills, and, and they all came back. So we gained <clears throat> back all the same people that we had lost, and right. everything worked out uh, really and of well. Of course, the, the beauty of the golf is if members are coming back. They want their friends to play with, so exactly, right, they're yeah. saying to them, hey, you got to come over here and check it out. Mm -hmm. And then you did something else that I don't think anybody else has done in the area, was the way you priced your membership fee. Well, we knew that we had to have a, a full membership. Yep. And so we didn't want to wait five or six years or ten years to get the memberships. We had to get the membership up. So what we did was we cut the membership uh, pricing by 40%. We figured it says, we need bodies here. Yep. And then uh, we kept the membership at that 40% off uh, for about uh, three years. And then we slowly went up a few percentage points every year. And it, we're still right now. But you, don't you have a policy about holding the membership for a certain period of time? No? Uh, for a long time. One of our policies that we have at the club is that uh, I noticed that when other, other clubs are struggling, what they'll do is they'll offer special incentives for new members. And Which I said, that's the a terrible idea. Off. Yeah. I says, you know, I says, if I'm, our memberships feel that a new person is getting a better deal than they are, I says, that's not right. So what we've done is we've uh, come up with our own policy where if you've been a member at our club for 15, con 15 continuous year, years, uh, you'll get a 50% reduction of your dues for the rest of your life. Wow. And, wow. Uh, That's Twin Hills that. Country Club. And yeah. it's, it's been working out good. And, uh, you know, one of the other things that we uh, we don't do that a lot of places uh, offer um, incentives to get more members to come in by saying, well, we have 10 of our members that want to come in. Can we get a special deal? And we don't offer any special deals. If you come in and say we have 20 members that want to join, well, they're they're going to be paying the same thing as if one right. member comes in. And I can assure you that every single member Whatever they're paying, you can check, find out, whatever you want. Everybody's paying the same amount. Yeah. Now, you've also been really smart <clears throat> in that you looked at this golf course and said, there's more opportunity here. And you did something that I don't think anyone's ever done, which is you expanded the facility. So instead of having one place to eat, where if you have a tournament, the tournament takes over, you built out another Right, venue. Venue, yeah. Actually, don't you have you have one, two, almost. We have five different. Uh, five different, okay, I've lost Dining count. areas. Dining areas. Banquet facilities. So yeah. you can have weddings going on, banquets going on, tournaments going on, all this. How's that worked out? How did that it, come about? Well, that was the only salvation for, uh, for us as a country club because uh, if you're going back some days, so a few years back, uh, most country clubs had one banquet facility and you just couldn't survive. Country yeah. clubs Can't make have money. to lose money in their food and beverage department. And the only way that you're going to make it is you have to expand the food and beverage department so that it can make a profit. 
and I knew at least that much. I said, the only way it's going to make a profit, it's going to, I'm going to make any money, is food and beverage has to make a profit. Yeah. And food and beverage is making a profit now, and it's working out well. And how do you compete? I mean, there's so many. I mean, we're sitting here at the Center Grill. Yeah. Not, not maybe that you're competing with Center Grill, but, you know, Bill does functions here, too. You've got all the other places that are doing weddings and functions. So how did you build a team, right? So first of all, you didn't know anything about golf. Right. What did you know about weddings and functions to build that team? Well, it's by hiring the right people and everything. Yeah. You know, I hired a great groundskeeper, I hired a good pro, and I hired a food and beverage manager, Laura Chaparis, who yeah, does a fabulous fantastic. job. Yeah. You know, she handles all of it, so it's almost completely out of my hands, and she does a fabulous job. Yeah. And one of the nice things is, you'll notice, we never do any advertising. We don't advertise for functions. We don't advertise for looking for golf members or anything. Everything is by word of mouth, and we have plenty of functions that we're always wow. busy, and wow. our membership is filled. So what gets you up now? Well, it's nice to get up in the morning and go to the golf course <laughs> and play around and not have to do anything else. So it works out pretty well because of the right people working for me are doing right, a great it's job. It's got to be a great feeling now, right, to come in and... After 10 years? It is. And I'm, I mean, it's I, a gem. I, I still enjoy doing a lot of the work there because every year we decided that we're not, I'm not going to take any profits out of the club. Any profits that the club makes, we pour it right back. You know, Which is what you did in the real estate business. Exactly. So it's the same it's, model. It's the exact same thing. Yep. So if you just keep it in good shape, the yep. people will come. So let me ask you this. So when the grandkids, because you have how many grandkids? I have five grandkids. So when the grandkids are as old as your kids were and they come along and say, Papa, we're taking over the golf club. What are you going to buy next? Jeez, I don't know. I have to give that one a lot of thought. <laughs> All right. I have some questions uh, that I want to ask you. And these come from one of my all-time favorite shows, Inside the Actors Studio. Did you ever watch that show? No, no. I'm Bravo. So James Lipton, mm -hmm. like we're doing here today, my interview and you would interview all the greatest actors in the world. And at mm -hmm. the end of the interview, he would ask the same series of questions. And I love the questions so much that I'm stealing them. I'm borrowing them from James <laughs> in, in the interviews here. So let me ask you this. What's your favorite word? Probably the best thing is the phrase where people tell me says, you can't do it. And it's just, yes, we can. Yes, we, we can. can. We can't fail. Yes. But uh, one of the things, my philosophy is, if you have to go in with the right attitude, it's, it's like when I got involved with the country club, I says, you know, if I go in there thinking that maybe it's not going to work, it probably won't. I says, I have to go in there with the attitude that failure is not an option. That's it. No matter what, you do whatever you have to do to make it work. So when you come across a problem, you straighten it out and move on. That's great. What's your least favorite word? No. No. When someone tells me, you know, you can't do this or you can't do that. Great. What turns you on? Waking up every morning, knowing that I'm still around. <laughs> <laughs> what turns you off? Just a bad attitude of people that think that, uh, you know, you can't do something. Okay. What occupation other than yours would you absolutely love to do? I always wonder if I remained in teaching, how things would have progressed if I, uh, you know, dedicated my life and stayed there 
right. retirement. Interesting. And uh, what occupation other than yours would you absolutely hate to do? Right now, I would hate to work for anyone else. Just, you know, once you've uh, done something where you're in charge and you make the decisions, it's awfully tough to give that up. Absolutely. And if heaven existed, what would you like to hear God say to you when you enter the pearly gates? That you did a great job. Nice. And you did a lot for everybody else. Wonderful. So this has been a great interview. And in all my interviews, I also love music. And we have our little jukebox here. So what's your favorite song? Geez, uh, Forever and Ever by Randy Travis. Forever and Forever by Randy Travis. Let's put the quarter in. Let's okay. find the song. All right. And then you and I can sing a few verses. Okay. Play it up, maestro. 